0: Hey, everyone, it's Adrian Penalzo here with the More Life Real Estate Investing Podcast. And I want to take a couple minutes to share with you one of our most recent success stories. And this just happened last month. Uh, Actually, uh, one of our Burr projects that we got into with a joint venture partner. So everybody's still asking me now, can we still make the numbers work here in Hamilton with a very successful Burr? So yes, we can guys, we sure, sure can do it. And we're still doing it. Like I said, this refinance just happened last month and I'm gonna share the numbers and I'm gonna walk through them with you. And again, this is the kind of thing that we take part in here at Executive Capital. Um, something I like to say without, you know, don't wanna sound pompous, but we are um, market experts when it comes to the bear strategy here. Um, and these are the kind of results we've delivered throughout 2021 and now 2022. So let's go through the numbers quick. And uh, guys, if you want to get involved in stuff like this, or if you want, you have some questions about it, shoot me an email. Reach out to me. Send me a message. Um, Adrian at investwithepc.com. No problem. We'll answer all your questions and uh, hopefully get you started on the right path and kind of get yourself involved in these kinds of projects. So I'm just going to read off my little pad here, uh, the number. So this particular project, uh, purchase price, $740,000 distressed, Um, 80% loan to value. So we have 20% down payment, $148,000 down payment. Um, which just means that we have a first mortgage of 592000 So this particular project, we had total carrying costs at $25,544, and we spent $116,436 on renovations, right? Um, pretty much everything brand new, kitchens, bathrooms, flooring, lighting, plumbing, um, on and on and on in this multifamily property. We completed our renovation seven months, give or take seven or eight months uh, after the project started. Remember, the purchase price was seven hundred and forty thousand. We refinanced seven to eight months later for one million one hundred and seventy dollars. Eighty percent loan to value gives us a new mortgage of nine hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars. Um, so now we just subtract back guys. We subtract all of our expenses, our initial expenses that we bought the property for. And here's the math. So 936, the new mortgage. Now we subtract our first mortgage. When we first bought the house, we got to pay that off 592,000. Our original down payment was $148,000. When we first bought the property, got to pay that back. Remember, the carrying costs were $25,544, subtract that, subtract our rentals, uh, $116,436, and finally, subtracting our closing costs. What does all that, sorry, closing costs are $14,000. So what does that all mean, guys? What that means is infinite return on our joint venture project money infinite return on our JB capital because we have nothing left in the property. When you do the math and you subtract, we have nothing left in the property. And above and beyond that, we pulled a surplus on this one. We pulled a $40,020 surplus. So that $40,020, we split that with our joint venture partner. So $20,010 for him. $20,010 for us. Above and beyond that, there's cash flow, there's debt pay down. Tenants are paying down our principal, remember? Passive appreciation. All these things are happening with no money left in the deal plus a $40,020 paycheck, equivalent to what's our ROI? What's our ROI? Infinite return. We have no money left in the deal. Guys, If you're interested in more information on projects like this, how can you carry them out? How can you get involved with our company? Shoot me an email, send us a message. Let's have a coffee and chat about it. Definitely get you in the game. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Adrian Pinozo here with More to Life Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we help you get more to life and start living your dreams through the power of real estate investing. So our guest today... Episode number 22, How Time Flies, it's Scott Crone.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, you're welcome, Scott. Scott is a a Chicago native whose career in architecture began in 1991 by pursuing his Master's of Architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. While obtaining his degree, he also worked as a project manager for Optima, Inc. During his time with Optima, Crone's responsibilities included notable projects such as a 400 unit Cormandel in Deerfield, Illinois, the 40 unit Hedge Row in Winnetica, Illinois, and a 51 unit Optima Center Wilmot in Wilmot, Illinois. In 2010, Crone founded CODA Management Group, a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. That's what it's all about, right? Um, Since its inception, Coda manages a wide range of real estate, including single family, multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouses, and self-storage and multi-use flex athletic spaces. Currently the platform and investments is in excess of, get this one guys, $55 million. that's it so scott pleasure to have you obviously an abundance of experience in this field that you can share with our audience and listeners so i'm super excited to get into it thanks again scott
1: oh my pleasure
0: all righty so getting to know scott since the early 1990s scott got started in architecture and worked as a project manager for variable uh, noticeable notable projects where did your passion, Scott, for real estate investing and business ownership start? And tell us about your journey from there to where we are today.
1: That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, you know, I, I've always enjoyed um, the creativity side of building things. And that was even from a young age. And, you know, it's sort of um, cliche that a lot of architects, people who go into architecture or study architecture, you um, Begin with Legos, but it, it really was. I mean, I, I began way back then. Um, my mother is from Denmark, and so you know, I got a lot of chances to go over to actually the original Lego Land and see that, and just see the incredible things that they were building, which really just spurred my imagination and creativity when I would come home and and do things. And so you know, I, I took architectural classes in um, in high school. My high school was large enough that we had a few that I could take. And so when it came to college, I was like, do I want to go to an architectural school or do I want to do a liberal arts school and, and play college sports? And at that point in time, I decided to um, pursue sports and uh, in college in a normal, traditional sense. So I thought I'd, I'd closed off um, architecture and real estate um, from that view. And uh, it wasn't until my senior year when my parents showed up and um, uh, for parents weekend and they said, well, what are you going to do next year? And we had a family business. You know, I was fourth generation in that. um, And I thought I would be going into the family business. And I was told that I wouldn't be. Um, And I was like, oh, did I offend grandpa? You know, Did I I piss somebody off? And they're like, no, we're selling the business. And, you know, this is something that my entire life, that business was there. And so it was quite a shock. And, um, you know, fortunately, my dad had a little bit more time to think about it. He had a seven-hour drive, um, you know, to my school. And you know he, he's the one who suggested I pursue architecture again. And, and I was fortunate that they had these master's degree programs. It was the first year that they had them where mm-hmm. I didn't have to have an undergraduate in architecture in order to get my master's in architecture. And so that's when I did it. And um, that I had like three weeks off between college and graduate school. And my first semester was over the summer and we were learning about the industry and it became very clear and very evident right from the beginning that the developers are the ones that really control the real estate process. It's not the architects, but the developers. And so that's when I became um, the TA for my professor, who was a developer. And I got to understand the business side of it. And that really just fueled my interest in real estate and, and owning a business and being a business owner.
0: Nice, nice. So essentially, Well, let me get into the next question because it kind of rolls into that. Um, In 2012, you founded Coda Management Group, a firm specializes in managing real estate assets. How did this opportunity come across your radar and what does your portfolio include with respect to that?
1: Um, Well, when we first began as as a developer and doing design build, we were flipping. I mean, you know, they weren't small, you know, you know, if you think flipping, you're thinking of buying an existing house, cosmetically improving it and then selling it. But that's not what we were doing. We were buying a property, a house, tearing it down, building a new one and selling it. So the homes that we um, sold were anywhere from a million to three and a half million dollar homes. And then we were also doing that on the commercial side in terms of, um, buying an existing commercial building, tearing it down and building condominiums or townhomes or or flexing. So we weren't really holding assets. We were just constantly churning the assets. But then the crash came, right? We had the 08, 09 crash and the entire development market went away. And the only thing that people were able to invest in was apartments, because that's where, you know, all the lending institutions were directing everyone towards apartments. And we we saw an incredible amount of cap compression and competition within that marketplace. and that's when we began buying other assets so that's where we bought the flex warehouse space that also included um uh sports facilities in it we had um sports training we have a athletic field there's a gym in there Um, but then we have other tenants as well and we had apartments and so um it was in 13 that i began i was exposed to uh, self-storage where i had a a consultant client that wanted me to find them a distressed self-storage and i really couldn't find it everything else was performing and doing well there you know in this market of great depression or recession there wasn't a, a whole lot in the self-storage arena which caused me to really investigate and study the industry and that's where i saw how resilient it is um, a lot of people call it recession proof i don't believe there's anything that's a proof mm-hmm. so i deemed it recessionary resistant and um that's when we began uh, developing our first one was in was in 13 because of the client who wanted me to find them one. So that's how we got into self storage. Currently, the only um, non self storage asset that we have is the industrial warehouse flex warehouse space. Um, we do have that, but the apartments, we sold them all off.
0: So self storage, that's pretty interesting. Um, do you still have a portfolio of self storage? Uh, Buildings, or do you just build it, sell it, move on to the next.
1: No, we are holding them right now. So that's the asset that we're we're building. So that's when we started CoDe Management Group was to hold these assets versus them. So we um, the first one that we did was in um, just south of O'Hare Airport. That one we did flip, but then uh, we did another one in Illinois, and then we've um, since that period of time we've done Milwaukee, Chicago. Toledo, Dayton, uh, we have in Louisville, we have, we just bought a new facility, new for us. It was an existing facility in Michigan, and then we're investors in um, Lynchburg and then Maine as well.
0: Wow. What's, um, what's the average size of your, of your spots there?
1: The average size is probably around 80,000 square feet gross and about anywhere from six to 700 units.
0: Wow. Have you, I guess what I want to, what I want to try to focus on here for our listeners is um, you've invested in apartment buildings before. Correct. Okay. So obviously you have self-storage, you have apartment buildings. What have you found in your market center yields a better return or I'm trying to compare apples to apples as far as ROI goes and whatnot, uh, rate of return and so on and so forth between the two acquisitions. Can you comment on that?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, better, there's many different ways that you can define better, right? So ROI is one of them. Um, Risk is another one. Flexibility of the investment is another one. Um, Understanding the marketplace. So when we look at all of those factors, that's why we've determined that we feel that self-storage is better than multifamily. And, and here's why I will say that. First of all, they're very similar. You know, I, I people say, um, well, I understand apartments, but I don't understand self-storage. And to me, I, I just don't get that comment because of mm-hmm. the fact that a self-storage unit is an apartment without a toilet. You know, it's, it's the most basic concept of an apartment. It's a box. So it's a lot easier for us to manage that. Cool. Um, so I don't have to worry about the late night calls about a toilet flooding or the heat, not working or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it's a, it's a much more consistent type asset. The other advantage is that we don't have to worry about tenant eviction laws and stuff like that. We don't, you know, the whole referendum and moratoriums on rent abatement. We didn't have any of those within our industry. We were deemed essential. And so, um, self-storage actually thrived during the pandemic, um, yeah. The next thing is that when we look at operational expenses, self-storage, I mean, let's go to multifamily. Multifamily is anywhere from 50 to 55% of your NO, your operating income is your expenses. Within self-storage, we're typically 25 to 35%. And a lot of the facilities that we're opening up now will not have anybody actually on site. They're 100% remote and online. And so we're, we're trying to condense those expenses even further and making sure that we're running very tight ships. The next thing I would say comparing the two is when we were developing multifamily, it was sort of like the field of dreams approach, like build it and see if they will come. Like we'd lick our finger, hold it up, see what the way the wind was blowing. And yeah, there's a market for this Um, within self storage. We can analyze that market very specifically within a three mile, five mile radius. And we, we will know what the competition level is. We'll know what the supply index is and we'll know what the pricing is and all the demographics to see, to determine if it's a viable investment. So from those perspectives and the fact that when I have self storage, I can change my unit configuration. If I have a f- too many five by fives that are not selling, I can turn them into a five by 10 and then they'll have a different lease up velocity. I can't do that with a multifamily. So when we did the 400 units, that was like a hundred million dollar investment. Uh, you know, we just bought 355 units And it was a two and a half million dollar investment, so I I can buy a lot less, a lot less dollar amount, but equally many rental units. So my exposure is less. So between my exposure being less, my expenses being less, um, understanding the market is better. These these are all the reasons why I deem self storage a better investment for us compared to multifamily because of the factors of
0: what I just laid out. Mm -hmm. So this the self storage and this is really interesting to me and it's interesting to me because i got all my like obviously we're up to 368 units now um all multifamily um which is about 68 69 properties multiple okay. properties that we own um so i find it very interesting because i don't own any self storage but my question would be um, okay i know give or take typically the growth of multifamily and all uh, ranging right from you know a quad up to 35 50 unit apartment buildings that passive appreciation so question is the self storage that acquisition that building um, does that grow in value as well in line with real estate growth? Possibly that that asset possibly appreciates in time as well, like real estate does? Do you know what I mean
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it should. And as you know, within each asset class, it's all a matter about your rental income, right? There's the rental income, your NOI and right. your cap rate. So yeah. the one difference is that I would say that re- one of the reasons I sold my multifamily was the fact that I thought we were at the peak, the apex of the market in terms of the cap compression. And I got out maybe a few years too early, but at the bottom line is um, I'd rather be on the front end of the curve than the back side of the curve. So that was one of the reasons why we sold our, our multifamily. Um, so NOI and cap rate both impact these the reason why we bought that existing facility was because the owner hadn't raised the rents in like 10 years. So, you know, is that asset appreciating? No, because, you know, the fact that they're not increasing their income, you know, mm-hmm. he got a better sales price than was maybe warranted based upon the income, but that was because of the market was dictating and driving that not because of what they were doing to enhance their performance. So what we're doing is we're coming in and just raising rents. We're raising rents thirty percent. They were they were that much further below the marketplace, and so if you think about a thirty percent, you know, increase in your NOI at a even a seven or six and a half cap rate, that's a pretty substantial increase in your in your the value of your asset. So we are seeing that. So the best cap rate compression that we've seen is when the um, Blackstone or the Extra Space or the larger the biggest REITs have bought things. We've seen it at four and a half cap
0: mm-hmm.
1: and multifamily is trading maybe at three cap right now. So is, is it as good as multifamily? No, but it is equally, it is doing very well within the economy.
0: So basically the analysis on the numbers and value is somewhat similar to multifamily, right? In to cap, your, your, your income that you're generating and you got I guess like I said or you said you have the luxury of not having to adhere to the landlord tenant board stipulations and rules is that accurate?
1: That's very accurate, yes.
0: Which we both know and I definitely know could become a serious pain in the butt um when you have these legacy tenants and you're trying to, you know, stabilize a building, a multifamily building and get them out and renovate and then obviously uh, moving forward from there. But it sounds like obviously the self storage stuff, you don't have that, which is such a breath of fresh air, quite frankly, in my opinion. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I get the, there's pros and cons to each of these things, especially like, you know, capping rental rental rates that, you know, raising the rent so much so that someone has to move out and they're displaced. Obviously, there's challenges to those those people that go through that. But the flip side, if someone's been in the same rental place for 20 years and they're paying rent from 20 years ago, how how does the owner? I mean, I guarantee you that property taxes have they've gone up over 20 years. You know, so, you know, there's got to be a pros and cons to both of these. There's got to be a balance. And, you know, and I think there's certainly different cities and, and states that are very heavily tipped towards the tenant. Versus, you know, the balance or being equally, you know, heavily weighted towards the owner. Um, and I think that those markets, I mean, here in Chicago, they're, it's, heavily, it's heavily tilted towards the tenant. Um, and they yeah. give tenants incredible leverage over in owners, um, which to me is who's taking on the risk. The owners are the ones who are taking on the risk and have to make the, you know, the mortgage payments and those sorts of things. So um, it's, it's uh, one of the reasons why we've got out of buying in Chicago multifamily
0: yeah no it's definitely definitely uh favorable to the tenant here as well um similar to like where you are uh, definitely favorable to the tenant when it comes to multifamily. so um so as far as you know you're still actively buying these acquisitions self-storage still doing what you do best there um do you does your company how does your company attract, and I'm assuming you're attracting investors, to invest with you guys to buy these acquisitions? Or how are you going about that?
1: Yeah, we, we've just developed um, a group of investors that have been, you know, some have been with us from near the beginning. Um, you know, my first three investors were my, my father, my uncle, and my grandfather. And, you know, mm-hmm. I raised $100,000 to buy yeah. a property and tear it down and, and build a new one and sell it. And so from there, we've just grown the, our base. You know, we've just been talking about what we've been doing and what we're doing and how we're going about it. and been able to attract people that have said, yeah, we, we want to come alongside you. And, you know, I, I will say that we tested out the self-storage model for a good number of years before we really began to expand the portfolio. So, you know, the, the idea was to have 10 investments in five years and we're, we're approaching that. But now we're trying to get it even bigger to take it to instead of like a $100 million portfolio to take it like to a $200 million portfolio and attract the mid-level REITs and then begin selling off that asset and getting the the bigger cap compression based upon having a portfolio versus individual assets. And so that's that's our goal. So when people do express interest for us, um, we have um, an investor portal within our website and people can go in there and learn about what we're doing and if it's right for them and what investment strategies that we're doing, because if you're buying an existing facility, it's obviously a lot different strategy than if you're doing development. And a lot of our, the bulk of our investment has been development where we're holding these for a longer period of time. And so there's just different um, strategies. And we want to make sure that when someone does become interested in us, that our strategies align with what their goals are.
0: Gotcha. Um, So your website, what is your website?
1: Uh, www.codamg.com. And then we uh, started our own self storage brand, which is called One Stop Self Storage. So that is www.onestopselfstorage.com.
0: Do you have any investors yet? Maybe we can get you some. Do you have any investors yet from Canada?
1: Uh, not in self storage. We did when we were doing more flips, they were looking for shorter term. And then the issue became the conversion rate in, in changing of the dollar. Right. So when it was more advantageous to invest from Canada versus the United States.
0: Okay. So what, um, if we have people that are interested here listening, what would be the minimum investment? Well,
1: our typical share is a hundred thousand dollars. But depending on the situation, we have, you know, fragmented a, a share um, depending on, you know, sometimes a, a family will come in and, you know, one member of the family will buy half a share and then the other one will invest another half a share. So it's that sort of relationship. But each each of our projects, we base the unit investment off of one hundred thousand dollars.
0: Gotcha. That's reasonable. OK.
1: Um, I mean, keep I in mind, little... we're, we're each of our deals, we're only raising anywhere from, you know, a, a million to two and a half million dollars. I mean, we're not each of our projects are not, you know, we're getting 800 units. We're not raising, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so, you know, they're smaller investments because they're smaller you know, deal size.
0: Right. And typically, let's say you let's say you're buying one that is under market rents are under market, yada, 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 typical scenario, bank financing. Um, is it similar to multifamily where they'll they'll look at the NOI and they'll say, okay, Scott, based on the purchase and the NOI right now, what it's producing, we're going to give you 55% loan to value or 60% loan to value. And then after you've raised the rents and stabilized the project or whatnot, if that's the right word, then the, like, what's the most, the bank will award you on the loan to value on the buy and the buy, I guess after you've done what you do?
1: Yeah. So on the development, we're looking at loan to cost um, because they'll, all, they'll also look at loan to value. But um, on the existing facilities, they're not. They're also looking at our debt yield as well as our debt coverage ratio, similar to multifamily. But mm-hmm. we've gotten loans to 70, 75 percent in terms of um, loan to value.
0: That's pretty respectable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's why we're, you know, our last one that we bought, we raised less than a million dollars to acquire our facility.
0: Wow. Wow. That's good. Um, getting off topic for a second, um, getting more so into, uh, I want to talk about um, the book. You wrote a book. Okay. High Performance Homes, Navigating the Green Road to Your Dream Home back in 2012. You discussed the home building and remodeling process and you suggest uh, ways uh, making your home more efficient so on and so forth. Um, Tell me a little bit about the book and um, how it stayed relevant over the past 10 years of, I guess, when you first authored it. What was your mindset back then? And have have you changed that mindset now shifting into this different space or can you talk a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we wrote the book because we were, when we first started doing green, it was cost prohibitive for a lot of this expensive technology that you think of, Um, especially here in Chicago. So let's say like solar panels where we don't have enough sunny days in order to really make the solar panels worthwhile compared to like, the Southwest. Right. Right. But we were looking at, we were trying to institute a lot of these ideas or these tech, you know, the design technologies. um, But people had a resistance to it because of the fact that they thought it would cost a lot more. So for instance, when we were designing 12 townhomes, we altered the orientation of the townhomes in order to maximize the solar orientation to allow heat gain to come in during the winters. Um, And then how to take advantage of, Solar shades during the summer to cut down the heat load. So we always we would be looking at the amount of windows, the orientation, um, all these different things, which inherently are green. Um, and as cost of the green technology came down in price, we began to implement them more. So when I built my house, I went super green. I tried to implement a lot of green technologies, and I, I spent like fifty-five thousand dollars more on it in terms of it. And I did a metal roof, I did solar panels, I did geothermal heating and cooling, but then there was lots of things that didn't really cost me anymore. Like our bamboo floors, they were at exactly the same price as oak, but I was able to, um, stain them to make them look like oak. They weren't bright, you know, white. I, I did a darker stain. Um, you know, I have a fireplace that burns corn oil that doesn't uh, lose heat up through the chimney. That was about the same price as a normal fireplace. Um, You know, in terms of the cabinets, in terms of insulation, I paid a little bit more for insulation, but the savings on it was tremendously more. So there's lots of different things within the marketplace that you can do that cost the same. And then there are some things where you can make educated decisions on where you want to put the money to make it worthwhile. And that was the impetus of the book is like show people how you can do both without having to go totally nuts or compromise your design. Um, When green was first started people consider it to be very contemporary or modern or futuristic and looking, but that's not necessarily the case. We've designed, we did a tour here in my hometown where we had very traditional homes and we had very modern homes that were both green and probably equally as green um, because of the different technology that we instituted. And so that's really the point is like how, how you can make your home even an existing home. I would have people call me up and say, I want to do something green what's the one single thing that i should do better than anything else and i would say remove your insulation from your attic and put in spray foam insulation and they're like but i want to what do you think about solar panels or you know lights or this and that i'm like if you want to do one thing that would be the one because you're going to save both on heating and cooling and you know those are your big operational expenses in your home think about you know, prior to the pandemic, people weren't spending a lot of time at home during the day. So they weren't using a lot of lights They're, You know, they're, you know, you can get a programmable thermostat. That's easy. That's fine too. But in terms of like where your biggest loss is, it's in your envelope. And so why not improve your envelope?
0: Gotcha. Great advice. Yeah. I love the spray foam. We're doing it on all of our, uh, we're a lot of our renovations that we're involved in when we buy these multifamilies and then we're doing the, um uh, uh, extensive renovations on them uh we're down to studs and um we i love the spray foam it's a, obviously it's more expensive than your regular bat insulation and whatnot but yeah we've had so such great success too with that um changing them over uh most of the time obviously all in the attics there like you mentioned um obviously we're buying really distressed properties so the insulation is pretty much non-existent up there so we just go right to spray foam and you can and, imagine the heating savings of the, and the oh, cooling suits yeah night and, day, night and day for sure um back to the self storage so hundred thousand dollar investment um and not to get overly specific but in general terms um what's the rate of return that you're offering or how do you attract those investors what are you offering them with that 100000
1: What do they get? Again, it, de- it really depends on whether we're buying a, an existing facility, which is stabilized, or versus a new construction and development. And so my development background, we will always look at something that has to have a 20% return because of the level of risk. We want to make sure that the risk and the reward and the time frame is um, in alignment there.
0: On mm-hmm. um, the mm-hmm. existing
1: ones, obviously, there's a lot less risk. And so that's, those are typically in the teens and um, because of, you know, we're, we're adjusting the level of risk. Um, So it's also different structures in terms of whether it's just a true split or there's a prep. You know, we, we're part of a a larger self-storage mastermind. And so we're always constantly being aware of what the market is offering and making sure that our product is in alignment with that, or we feel even better to um, than what the market is offering. So we're looking at multifamily and, a lot of people get hung up on the splits. Like what is the split between the investor and the, and the general partner? And they'll say like, well, in this multifamily, I'm getting 80%. In yours, I'm, I'm getting 50% or something like that. And so this is, this is more attractive to me. And I say, well, what's your projected rate of return? And they're like, well, 10% or 11%. I'm like, well, they're having to give you 80% of the deal in order to get you that 11%. Mine, we're we're outperforming that and it's 50%. So which inherently has more risk? To me, it would be the one that has to give you 80% in
0: order to get you that 11% rate of return. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, Scott, real estate success doesn't come without, obviously, hard work and dedication. Um, If you had to start your investing career again from day one, Where would you do it and how would you start?
1: Well, I I don't think I would change anything about how I started. I think that my background really prepared me very specifically and intentionally for it. Um, The one thing I would probably do is say, be more patient. Don't be so eager to jump in and and start your own company at 28. You you don't know as much as you think you know. So, um, you know, take some more time, learn and grow and uh, just be more patient. But I, I don't think I would change how I started.
0: And would if you could go back, would you go right into self storage investing and skip the multifamily altogether, knowing what you know now and what you've, I guess, perfected now, sort of speak? How would that look?
1: I think it would be harder just because I don't think there's a lot of developers doing that. what we do um, there. I don't think there's that many that our developers design and build within self storage. Um, the fact that I was able to learn that in the multifamily arena um, really prepared me for not just multifamily or self-storage, but I got a better understanding of it o- overall of the real estate market because of the fact that we also had mixed use products in that. So I, I got exposed to a broader breadth of the real estate market, which then allowed me to then focus in specifically on self-storage. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Cool. All right. So Scott. <clears throat> Scott, um, what is your why? Why do you do what you do?
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a profound question. Um, I've been uh, undergoing, a, I'm halfway through a two and a half year program about um, transformation. And it's about leadership uh, skills. And, and every quarter we do a, a retreat, a two and a half day retreat where it involves a lot of silence and solitude to help me better understand it. I mean, obviously, I think the common thing that people say is your family. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there's a there's a deeper down, you know, cause and effect of why you do things. Right. Um, And for me, I I like to see how things develop and grow and build, Um, you know, my my core instinct is my gut in terms of like what what motivates me and um, you know, there's, there's mind, there's heart, and then there's your inner feeling that gut feeling that you have. And that motivation for me is, is to help people. Um, and also to do it in a way that is building and growing. Um, that is my core thing. And so when I can see, it doesn't, it, you know, the greatest joy that you got is when you design something and someone moves in and they're like, this is exactly what we hope for. I mean, that's an incredible feeling. I'm sure you get that when you've Taking an apartment building all the way down to its studs, and you you create something really cool and and a nice living environment for people. And to me, the difference between multifamily or single family and self storage is self storage. We're ultimately addressing a change, a challenge, a pain in someone's life. It could be a divorce, it could be a death, it could be displacement, it could be dislocation, any of these different things, which is inherently a bad thing in their life. You know, there's there's a negative change. And self-storage is a temporary relief valve in order to help someone during that process. So if we can help make that, that transformation, that change in that person's life easier, then that's one of the reasons why we do what we do.
0: Amazing. You're very successful now, obviously. And we see that relative to the way the world views success. Do you think there's still more to life for Scott? And when you picture mortal life for Scott Crone, what do you see?
1: Well, that's, again, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this whole uh, two and a half year program. Um, you know, I, I do think the world defines success, you know, in terms of um, fame. And I, I don't I don't define success that way. Um, success to me is if I do something well and I can do it well repeatedly. And um, that to me is what we're doing. So it translates into my, my business, my business relationships, the people I work with, my family. Um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm growing. And I'm, you know, one of the last retreat we talked about was, you know, if, if you're the same 20 years later, then how is there change in your life? You know, you, you need to be doing things differently from a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago to really see if there's change. And um, when I look back, and I you know I can dramatically see a difference in how we're doing our business now comparatively to when we began, and to me that's a, that's a sign of growth, and that's that to me is success.
0: Awesome, great advice. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap, Scott. Uh, we got a lot out there. It really, obviously, everyone listening, here's the the guru of the self storage in the flesh for us to. Uh, to get to know and contact. So, Scott, how do people get a hold of you if they want to invest with your company and, and dive deeper into that? What's the best way to contact you or get a hold of you?
1: Well, thank you. That's kind of you to ask that question. But what I'd like to do is offer your listeners, if they reference this show, when they email us at uh, info at coda, coda, com for management group. So, coda mg.com, info at coda mg.com. If they email us and reference this show, then what we will do is we'll send them two different things. One a a self storage deal analyzer, so that that way you can, if you're really into multifamily, you wanna see how self storage compares to multifamily. All you have to do is fill in the assumptions and it will automatically calculate your NOI and your cap rate um, for that. And you can stress test it in terms of playing with the numbers, but then also a feasibility study where we give it's a report that we hired to analyze a market that we went into and it not only talks about that specific market, but it also talks about self storage as a whole um, within the U S and it's obviously expanding into Canada and Europe now. But um, we will give both of those to your listeners when they, when they email us and reference the show. And then that way they can learn about the industry. They can learn more about it and see if it's the right investment for themselves.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm sure they'll take advantage of that. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? And kind it's of free. I'm sure, definitely through after listening to this show. I mean, you've peaked my interest, and I'm all about multifamily investing. So if you peaked my interest, I'm sure you've probably peaked there. So they'll definitely. Uh, I imagine you'll get a few people reaching out and taking advantage of that offer. So thanks so much for that. My pleasure. All right, Powell, Well, I wish you continued success and health, and and, and stay safe out there. And we'll chat soon.
1: Sounds good. Appreciate it. Take care.